I don't know. You just have to find the thing on there. You're prettier to look at than I am. You mean you went out of it? Yes. Where is it? It's right here. I had to cancel it because I started it. It was looking at me. <laughs> I canceled it already. That name gains us access, Father God, directly into your court. Okay. Now. I don't know. Right here. All right. So we've been talking about uh, the sovereignty of God. We're, we're, we're trying to get uh, do a discourse on the nine attributes of God. And this, this concept of sovereignty has messed up the church worldwide, not only the church, but the rest of the world as far as their view of God. And I've brought out for you how that the enemy has determined, been determined to do that since the Garden of Eden and before. He wanted people to have a different view of God than what reality says he is. And he's, he's been quite good. He, he's a tactical genius, and he knows exactly how to uh, present things so that it will be different than what God wants. But now one of the practical aspects of this is that we can look at some scripture because Jesus was sent here to show us the Father. He told, uh, he said, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And they observed him. They knew him after the flesh. And they walked with him and they heard him. They watched him pray. They watched him deal with people. And not one time was he ever mean to anybody. Not one time did he not heal somebody because of, you know, well, it's just not God's will this time. So in Matthew chapter 5, we have, we have some information that he's given us. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, it says, And you have heard that his has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now before I go on with that, verse 39, I want to point out that the, he did not say the scripture says. He says you've heard that it's that it said. There's, there, there is a, a document, ancient document called the... Uh, what is the name of that? The Kumarabi. Now, they might not be pronouncing it correctly. But there's lots of the Kumarabi, which was ancient. Uh, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be Arab, but it was those kinds of people that had a book that they went by. The Kumarabi, a lot of it was interwoven into the scriptures. And one of the things that the Kumarabi said, that if you were married and your wife could not bear children then you need to go into your handmaiden and raise up children for yourself. And so that's where the Abraham and Sarah thing came in. And that's, you know, it was custom. There's a lot of custom back then. And this is what Jesus is referring to. You've, said, you've heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, 
go with him twain. Give to him that asked thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Those are people that hate us, right? Love our enemies. If you ever want to get into the depth of this and get into the into the book of martyrs, Fox's book of martyrs, which is six volumes. It's not just that little tiny one that people, a lot of them use. Six volumes of this. And find out what the Christians went through uh, because of Jesus and how they were martyred and suffered. And I mean, it's incredible. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but I'll mention it again. A friend of mine that pastors up in Tacoma, Washington, he was uh, going through that study and really delved into what really took place and there's things that happened to those people it's unimaginable unimaginable but he asked the Lord he said Lord what torment they went through I mean they were put on stakes and lit covered with tar and set on fire and while they were while this was happening they were singing in the spirit and the and and, and Tim asked the Lord he said what about those people he said, he said, how could they stand it? He said, I took them from their bodies before they felt the pain. He said, they felt nothing. So, it's sort of like uh, the guys in the fire, you know, the four Hebrew children that was thrown into the fire. They didn't even smell like smoke. So, we sell God short a lot of times about we're afraid to be persecuted. You know, a lot of us get upset when somebody looks at us the wrong way. Or doesn't shake our hand the way that we think. You know, but, but, but I mean, these people suffered for Jesus. So he says here that you love your enemy. You love your enemies. Notice what to do next. Bless them that curse you. So what if you're standing in line at Walmart and somebody gets aggravated and you starts curse you? What Are you going to turn around and say, Bless you, my brother. Bless you, my sister. Be warmed and filled. <laughs> Whatever. Do good to them that hate you. And this, if you'll do some word study, you'll find out that it's more than just doing something in return. This is actively planning to do something good for somebody that hates you. Uh, he said, and do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you. You know the prayer that's usually offered about when somebody's despitefully using you? Dear God, I pray that he goes to hell and burn forever. That's usually the prayer that people... But no, the Lord Jesus wants us to pray for people that despitefully use us. So my question... Well, let's continue to read here. Might as well go on a little further. He said, despitefully use you and persecute you. Do some word studies. Find out about all that. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven... For he maketh his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not the publicans also? Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven which is perfect. It's, it's the Greek word which means mature. So he's wanting to bring us to maturity. Now, the thing about this is, is this gives us a picture 
of the way Father God really is. You say, yeah, but He sends the sun and the rain. But see, if you're from the Middle East, when, when rain comes, that's a blessing. So, so it's not like floods and all that we would think that God's sending the rain. And you know, they've, wrote and, they've written gospel songs about the rain. It won't always rain. The sun's going to come. No, rain is a blessing. You plant a crop in the desert, what do you want it to happen? Rain. So it's a blessing. So God is interested in blessing humanity, not bringing curses and all this stuff, and, and just because people are mean. I mean, in my book, just as, you know, I'm glad I'm not God. And a lot of people are probably glad I'm not God. Because people that would hurt children, in my book, hell's not hot enough. You know, I mean, that's just me. I've, I have not gotten to the point that I am mature like my father yet. But that seems to indicate that that's what Jesus wants from us, isn't it? He wants us to be mature. John the Revelator in 1 John tells us in, in chapter 4, great discourse on the love of God. But he said, perfect love casteth out fear. Cast it out. So perfect love, that's that same word teleos. Same word for mature. So when your love walk rises to the place of maturity, gets to a, let's call it this way, when your love is complete, you're not going to have any fear in your life. It casts out because he said fear has torment. Love doesn't have torment. So he's trying to tell us here that God expects us to be just like him. Now that seems a little off color, but he really does. He wants us to be just like like him. He is our father. Just like I wanted to be just like my father, you see. Now some people have fathers they don't want to be like. It's it's very interesting how that sometimes that, you know, uh, hate, hatred can cause you to become just like that which you hate. It's, it's interesting because I, I've known people personally now. I've lived long enough to, to see it come and go and in progress. How that people that have hated their relatives or hated this person or hated that person and swore they'd never be like them turned out to be exactly like them. Amen. Exactly. See, Love is an attractant as well. So that, that which we love, we progress toward. I like what one guy said. I don't know who it was. Probably Copeland. But he said, fear and faith are two positive forces. Both of them have the ability to bring to pass that which is unseen. So if we allow our love to grow, and how does, how does that happen? How does our love grow? Our love grows by beginning to know the Father. Now, in May of 1990, I think it was, might have been 91, I I get those years mixed up. But I was uh, studying about self-worth and I was doing a series on it and in my church. We had a Bible school there. This is down in uh, Central Florida. And I was studying one afternoon about self-worth and loving God. And all of a sudden, God broke in and said, Jerry, you don't love me. And I mean, it devastated me. I, I, of course, I needed, he knew I needed to hear that. 
because I thought I did. But you see, my response was I, I reminded him of all the stuff that I'd put up with over the years. And, and, and I was calling that love, see. I studied 40, 50 hours a week, prayed, you know, and all that. And so I was putting in my time like a time clock. He said, Jerry, you don't love me. And so then after a few days of processing, I went back to him and I said, okay, how do I begin to love you? He says, the first thing you have to do is find out how much I love you. His love is unconditional. It is never withdrawn. It is never in a place where it's in the balance. His love is forceful. His love is amazing. And, and as I began to delve into that, and I'm still on that journey of learning how to love Him, I want to love God. I want to love, because you see, the way you love God is the way you're going to love people. The Lord revealed to me along that time, because that, that really set me in for a couple of years worth of meditation. But uh, along that time, the Lord said some things to me about love. He said, you only love me to the degree that you love your enemy. That's when some of these passages are being made real to me in Matthew here. You only love me to the degree that you love your enemy. You see, God's love cannot be pick and cho chosen, picked and chosen. God's love is permanent. God's love was, will never be withdrawn. That's why the Holy Spirit picked up that old Greek word, agape, and brought it into the New Testament and used it because it describes a love that is beyond our comprehension. You cannot place a price on that object. It was used to uh, describe the worth of artwork back then, sculptures and whatever, whatever kind of artwork they had. That word was used back then to describe the worth of that, and that word meant that there was no value. It couldn't... It couldn't be bought. It was priceless. It, you know, and that's the kind of love that God had. So I began to find out how to love my Heavenly Father. And as I said, I'm still on that journey. But the mechanisms that are in place in the modern day church, it has, it has gotten us away from those concepts and that the love that we have is usually love that needs to be returned. In other words, we're, we're changing that word out for another word. We have storge. The word storge is translated love, and that's just uh, affection for people. We have phileo, you know about phileo. That is a love that, uh, it's a brotherly love kindness type word. Then we have eros. Eros was not allowed to be in the New Testament, but eros is one of the wor words that the world uses for love, and it's eroticism. And they think it's the highest kind. And it's not. So this love. Now, the things that are in place to make us or to try to get us to not realize who God really is, is in the framework of religion. And religion is basically described as man's attempt to control the response of God. So if I go through the motions of church attendance, of giving my money and my time, if I go through the motions of all these things and have a system with it, we call that religion. And it is an attempt to try to move God a certain way, either a blessing, 
if we don't do it, then it's, you know, it's a curse. And, and so that, that's what it's used for. And that's why I don't even like the word religion. Now, James uses it in the fifth chapter of James, uh, where that he said true religion is to visit the followers. Actually, it's a display of the love of God, is what he's talking about. But now, some people misunderstanding this attributes of God, especially the, the one about love, uh, they're going to come up with different ideas about why things happen. We have to justify. As human beings, we have a sense to justify experiences that happen to us. We have to make it, you know, seem palatable. We have to, we have to make it make sense. So this is, this is why this happens. And so people that don't know Father God, they're only acquainted with Him, and their, their, their level of intimacy is very low, if any. They will try to justify things that are happening. And this is, where the, this is where the Gnosticism came in, way back before the New Testament was even written. And that's where the Essenes and all these got in, the Egyptian, the, uh, uh, Egyptian Essenes and all these other things, which we'll probably get into a little later. But, there, but there's one huge scripture that a lot of people try to, to pin God on and say, well, you know, God did this to Paul. And that is in Acts the 14th chapter, verses 19 through 21. I want you to notice this. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Verse 20, Howbeit, as the disciples stood around him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to, and to Iconium, and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot to be said about that passage of Scripture. There's a lot between the lines there historically that we don't know. And by doing some research you can find out some, some real interesting things about what actually took place here. I mean, just, just, just for this, for example, he says, he says, confirming the souls of confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Now, just take that for example. I mean, if all of us in this room went on a mission trip and and they drew Brother Paul out and they stoned him and we gathered around him and God raised him up. Don't you think that there might be an opportunity for the other people to get in fear and say, you know what, I don't believe I want to go through that. See, And there's been people, it's hard for me to preach this, teach this, without getting in the spirit. Uh, people that are under persecution and pressure tend to pull back from the mission that God has given us. Now I have to be honest with you. 
If I was in that group and Brother Paul was stoned, I'd say, you know what? I believe the Lord's leading me back home. Don't you get a witness of that? Tim would say, amen, let's go. Back to Carrollton as quick as we can. See. Well, they thought just like we did. But I found, I found out some very interesting things. You know, the Calvinists, that's not fair. There's other people that say this too. Say that Paul had an eye disease. And they named it and all this stuff. I mean, here, here God is giving the Apostle Paul a mandate to take this living gospel around the world and then says, you know what? I think you're a little bit too haughty. I think I'm just going to punch you, you know, poke your eyes and give you some kind of ophthalmalia. You know, pussy, runny eyes. Now, that kind of theology or rendition, I should say, of that incident was based on some facts. But they got the facts all wrong. Because what actually happened to Paul when they stoned him, see, this is between the lines. This is, this is doing some research. What actually happened to Paul when they stoned him, they plucked his eyes out. They gouged his eyes out and he was dead. I believe this is when he went to the third heaven. That's my personal view. But he, they plucked his eyes out. And then when he was raised up, I'm sure he had a council with Jesus. And then when he was raised up, see, we don't know how much time transpired from the time his eyes were plucked out and he was killed. Because when you're stoned, they aim at the head and they don't stop until your brains are running out. That's, that's just, that's standard. You can find that out in history books. So we don't know how much time happened between that time and when he rose up. We do know uh, that, you know that some things took place in between. And here Paul is raised up with brand new eyes, goes back into the city, blows everybody's mind and says, I'm back. And that's when they were so moved to compassion and they said, we wanted to just go ahead and give you our eyes. So that's where that, you can see how messed up that doctrine had, you know, began with that and ended up saying, well, God just put his eyes out so that he wouldn't be too uh, proud and uh, arrogant. Well, how stupid is that? And then here, in, verse, in, in 2 Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to notice this. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak of a fool. This is 2 Corinthians 11, 23. I am more. Notice what he's going through. In labors more, more abundant. In stripes above measure. What was the measure? 40 save 1. Above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths often. Of the Jews five times I received 40 stripes save 1. Thrice I was beaten with rods. You know what happened when he was beaten with rods? Anybody remember what happens? The Roman soldier, or whoever's in charge, get your feet up under his arm, let your feet stick out this way, and they beat your feet with a little rod about the size of your finger until every bone in your foot is broken. That's, that's what happened. And he, Paul went through this. Then they stand you back up. It's sort of like the Israelites. 
building the pyramids or whatever they were building, making those, you know, they would, they would beat them like that and stand them back up and make them make brick. Still yet, see. Well, this, this happened to Paul. He said, uh, once I was stoned, thrice suffered, suffered shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils by mine own countrymen, perils by the heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I thought it was interesting that he used the Greek word marimna for that word care. Because that's the word that, that Peter used over in 1 Peter 5 that says, be careful for nothing. In other words, we're not supposed to have anything to do with marimna. But Paul said, the care of all the church. You know, the care comes upon me of all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is offended? And I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern my infirmities. So we have a list of what all Paul's been through. Now, I've heard many people over my life say, when stuff happens to you, you stop and say, oh God, why did you do this to me? What do you want to tell me? God was not the author of those things. People were. Those are the thorns that was in Paul's side. These are the thorns he's talking about. I was meditating on that scripture over in, uh, uh, <clears throat> what is it, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Is it 1 Corinthians 12? I get those mixed up. Where Paul was uh, talking about this eye, eye thing. Uh, you know, and he asked the Lord three times to take it away. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for me. I know I was teaching about that uh, a couple of years ago in the summertime up here in Oklahoma. And all of a sudden, the Lord gave me a revelation about grace and said, there's grace for everything. Grace is the power of God. Grace, charisma, is the manifestation, the manifold manifestation of the, of the power of God. There's grace for everything. So we had a shirt made up. I'm wanting to get them to make it here. It says, there's grace for that. A wonderful witnessing tool. Because, uh, because when you wear it, somebody sees it, they say, grace for what? You'll say, well, what kind of problem you got? Because there's grace for that. There's a measure of grace for every single thing. And that's what God was telling Paul. There's, there's, my grace is sufficient for you. But anyway, what I started to say, I was meditating about that message one day, and I read that scripture. It said, lest I should be exalted above measure, and the Holy Spirit... Right on the end of that, as my thought completed, that thought, the Holy Spirit said, whose measure? Whose measure? And as I meditated that more and prayed in the Spirit, He revealed to me it was the measure that the enemy had for Him. Not God's measure. Because God wanted Him exalted. God wanted Him. The abundance of revelation has brought Him, brought him to a place of the demonstration of the almighty power of God. And so the devil has a measure on you. He doesn't want you to, to move on in God. He, he, he wants you to, keep, to, to stay weak. He wants you to be cumbered about with much serving like it was with the lady, you know, and Jesus taking care of him. He wants you to give your life over to your job, to your family, to making money, to all, occupying your whole life with things other than 
service to Him. That's what the devil wants. He doesn't care whether you get saved or not. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your witness, but He wants to make sure that you don't walk in the grace of God, the power of God. He wants to make sure of that. And how many can say there's a whole lot of people that's fulfilling Satan's calling right there? Amen? Now, Paul's thorn and his persecution was not from God. I don't have time. That's a whole message in itself. But I just wanted to throw out enough so that it would get you interested in searching these things out. Uh, but I want to ask you a question now. We're, we're, in light of how people are viewing God, that, he, that, he, that God being sovereign, He takes babies. You know, you'll hear this at a funeral, a baby's funeral. Well, you know, God just wanted a little flower in heaven. And so he took that baby. I know Randy Gearhart, which was a teacher at Rama when I went back in 1979-80. Uh, he, I didn't know this at the time, but he, he told us about how that at his father's funeral when he was 14 years old, the preacher came up and said, that God needed your daddy in heaven more than you needed him here. And Randy said at 14 he made a decision that he would never serve God. Never never walk with God. Because a God like that that would take your daddy away. He didn't want anything to do with. And I, and I concur. If, if, if one of my babies died, one of my grown babies died. My babies are in their 30s and 40s. If one of them died and, and, and I thought God did it, I'd say, that's it, God. I'd be gladly to go to hell. But God doesn't do those things. God, God helps us. Amen. He wants to take care of us. But if I made your baby sick, you have, you have a baby. You don't have any children. If you had one and I made it sick, what would you do? Huh? Go ahead and tell me. Well, I mean, what kind of legal action would you take? Yeah. Go to the police, wouldn't you? This man took my baby from me. He killed my baby. And so we would go to the, we would go to the law. What if I somehow finagled my way around, got into your bank account and stole all your money? See. Let me, I'm trying to make a point here. It's kind it's, God does not operate one way and expect us to operate another. He cannot take authority over your choices. He can't just arbitrarily do stuff to people without their cooperation and approval. Now I know that's not real popular for people because people have a... Remember what I was saying a while ago? about people have a need to justify what happens. And so they put a God up there that said, well, you know, everything that happens, you know, he's planned it out, so we got to trust him. We, you know, we don't see right now. No, I, I can sure attest to that. You don't see. <laughs> You're blind, can't see far off. So a lot of people are, are coming up with these things because of that. So God's not going to take your baby or your money or your business or whatever, your wife or whatever it may be, any more than he would want me to. I'm supposed to operate just like he does. If he gets to kill his enemies, why can't I kill mine? See, God's not interested. God, now listen. Now this is a loaded statement here. A lot of these things I'm saying is premeditated. 
So please take this to your prayer chamber. But, but God can no more uh, override your will with any decision you make than I can. God cherishes our right to choose. And He honors that infinitely. Now let me, let me tell you this. I've got a funeral to go do Saturday and I was looking over Dean Braxton's book. Dean Braxton's book. Dean went to heaven for an hour and well, he, he was dead for an hour and 45 minutes. What, 45 or an hour and a half or something? Anyway, long time. And it's all documented. But I was reading in some of that, and he was talking about how that, that when you get there, Jesus sees himself on the inside of you. But he said the thing that took him the most was the fact that people still had choices there. Think about it. God is never going to take our choice away from us. We are an entity created by God and He respects us. I'm not going to override your will no more than God will. I cannot take authority over your choice. This is where uh, spousal abuse happens. They, they don't give the person the right to make their own choices. They have to make them for them. Uh, some people call it henpecked. Have you ever you know, they, you know, why you don't know what you're doing. But that, that's how that starts. But now, in James chapter 1, let's look at verse 3 and verse 13. Notice verse 3 of James. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your, what? Faith. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Not the trying of you. The trying of your faith. And then verse 13 he says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now, God allows our faith to be tested, but he's not tempting us. See, God is not luring us, trying to lead us into temptation. That's what Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. So, so God is not leading you in that. And then uh, 1 Peter 1.7 that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So, let no man say is emphatic in the Greek. I mean, it's almost like he hollered it out. Because I can tell you from the first verse of chapter 1 of James, if you'll start there and go down, it's to the diaspora. And the diaspora was the Jews that were scattered abroad. And when you became a Christian back then, uh, it, was, it was legally for a Roman to come and demand 10% of everything that you had. Well, you might give that up and then uh, a day later another one see you and say, I want 10% also. So what the disciples did, and I believe it was Holy Spirit led, I don't necessarily think that it's supposed to be like that today, but they had all things common. Nobody owned anything. They didn't, they didn't provide for them. So they, they had a place where they went and were fed and taken care of and, and Father provided. But because of the misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God, people blame God with evil. Now I was just told something a few days ago and I was kind of praying a while ago whether to tell this or not, but 
I, I'm going to because it, it is so bad. It, it is so bad for this to happen. You know, when we think about people getting into sin, you know, getting into methamphetamines and alcohol and all kinds of drugs, and, you know, living an illicit, profligate uh, lifestyle, we think that's bad. And it is bad. I mean, I, you know, I, I have, uh, I know people personally that have lost their teeth and everything because of meth. But I was told something the other day that, that another person, I, I'm trying to keep from using personal references here, that, that a person, that a young girl, 15 years old, started going to a uh, Church of God of Prophecy church. And uh, she has a dress code. They have to dress. And you remember uh, the years, back in the years of my Church of God days, back when we first started, I mean, we couldn't wear wedding bands, and my wife couldn't cut her hair, and I couldn't let my hair touch my ears. Well, that, that child, this day and time now, is going to that kind of church and living that kind of a lifestyle before God. Now, that is called asceticism. And asceticism, again, is religion trying to control the response of God. So this little child wants to be blessed by God. Doesn't want to be an offense. Wants to be blessed by God. So she's dressing up to the hilt. Looks like, um, um, you know, an Amish or a Mennonite or something, you know, but because of the garb that she has on. Can you imagine how, she, how she's received at school and different places? Now, this is what I wanted to say for the effect of it. That kind of a lifestyle is just as bad as the one with the meth. Religious addictions are the same, have the same behaviors as alcoholic addictions. Drug addictions, the same behaviors. I know a person, that uh, a man that got born again, started going to church. He had been a drunk. The family, you know, the whole town knew about it. The family was abused and all this stuff. Well, he got saved. Started going to church. Well, he made his family go. And he forced them. And, and so the, the behaviors that the man carried out with his family were the same as it was with the alcohol because they were being forced to do something that they really didn't want to do. You know, the Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads thee to repentance. It's not the fear of God. Not the fear of God. How many remembers, I know Brother Paul does, the old story about Jonathan Edwards preaching the great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there were thousands of people that came to Christ because of that one message. But how many realizes today that that message is not scriptural? Sinners are not in the hands of an angry God. God appeased his anger at the cross. Cross. God took care of it. God poured his wrath out on Jesus. So God's not angry with people anymore. God hates sin just like he used to. But he did something about sin. Uh, sin... is traditionally viewed as some kind of a moral deficiency that moves God into anger and affronts Him personally. That, that's, that's basically how the world, because of the church and what we've preached, that sin just makes God angry. But, but God is love. 
Now listen to this statement. Here's another premeditated one. God is love and is never personally motivated. Now that's hard to swallow. Especially when it preaches, you know, the sermons you hear out here in the world. But now let me let me explain a little further about this. If you believe that your behavior motivates God, good or bad, then you place yourself in a position over Him. Now, I know lots of people, upstanding people, loving God the best they know how, that, that will do certain things thinking that God is going to bless them for it. That's works righteousness. That's dangerous. That is not a way to develop intimacy with God. Because God wants you loving Him. Listen, it was not sin that motivated God to sin and crucify Jesus. Sin didn't do that. What did then? What motivated God? Remember I, remember I told you what He is. What is God? He is love. Love motivated God to send Jesus and pay the penalty for sin. He became what we were. Now listen, Jesus would have been sent regardless of anybody accepting him. Somebody preached one time, well, you know, if you were the only one, God would have sent him. No, God, God would have sent him if nobody accepted him because it had to be rectified. It had to be paid. So sin did not motivate him and he would have come and died anyway because God is love. Now, every single day that we live, we have the choice to eat from the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have that choice. Now, when we're born again, something happens on the inside of us, doesn't it? What happens? Technically, I've learned to explain it this way, is that our spirit begins to be cut away from our flesh. It was joined to our flesh through Adam's transgression. The flesh and the spirit were one. And so, by the sixth chapter of Genesis, we see that, that mankind had really lost his identity with God. So, by our cultivating this relationship with Him through the new birth, accepting the fact that the death, burial, and resurrection paid the whole price. You accept the free pardon of sin. Salvation is free. You're made brand new, not based on anything that you've done. It's, it's an act of your will. But you still live in a body. You say, well, if Jesus dealt with the sin, then what about these things that I do? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and look at verse 5. We're going to look at verse 5 and 7. I'm going to go over and read another one too, verse 27. Because we're going to have to stop this. I'm already gone 45 minutes. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 5. I want you to look at this. Really, just Every time I approach the Word of God, I try to approach it as though... I have never seen it before. So look at it with fresh eyes today. He says for, and, and the word for is an explanatory word. It means that it's tying 
uh, what he's about to say with what he's already said. And for time purposes, we can't really do that. Uh, it, it, it's basically bearing out the fact that God condemned flesh, uh, condemned sin in the flesh. But he says, for they that are after. Now the word after here means to follow after. It means to set your mind upon. It means to follow like a plan. Follow the plan of. So, let, so let's read it that way. For they that are following the plan of the flesh, they do mind. And that word there, phroneo, means to interest oneself in. They that are after the flesh, they interest themselves in the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, just as a point of your studying and your own personal studying, when you're looking at the 8th chapter of Romans, uh, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned until verse 16 and then verse 26. So all of this here, when it's talking about Spirit, it's talking about your human spirit. So notice this. He's, he's contrasting a walk in the Spirit as opposed to a walk in the flesh. We can choose to walk in the Spirit. That's after our spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But, but Father wants us to learn to walk after our spirit, just like Adam did before he sinned. See? He says, For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. We'll just go ahead and read verse 6. For to be carnally minded, that means to be following the carnality of the flesh. Now, I wish there was some way God could have caused us to be born again and give us our glorified body right then. I, I don't know why he put it off, but I wish it wasn't that way. Uh, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So we're seeing something form here. We're seeing a system that we can follow in different ways. We can follow the systems of the flesh, and it always seems right. When you're walking after the flesh, it always seems. It always, you know, a lot of people say, does this make sense? It just makes sense. Following after the flesh makes sense. It's earthly. But then following the Spirit sometimes, you, it doesn't make any sense. I've had God do, uh, tell me to do things while I was ministering stuff that, that it just totally didn't make any sense. And when it was over and done, I saw that it was, it was God. Now here, in, in Romans 8 again, he says, because, here we give the explanation, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. What? The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life. Notice it did not say alive. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. So here, I can't get into that in full detail, but I will throw this out for your consideration. We have two natures in us. One nature is the nature of the flesh. The mind of the flesh cannot be renewed. But yet we have great religious institutions trying to renew this natural mind. 
It can't be done. You can memorize stuff. Your natural mind cannot entertain revelation knowledge. That's only for your spirit. Your spirit has the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ and the mind of the spirit. And therefore we have a choice to walk between the two. Uh, as it says here in verse 7, it's non-renewable. Uh, Ephesians 4.23 says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Just a moment and we'll be done here, brother. Uh, next time we teach, we're going to talk about how did this false sovereignty get started? Where did it come from? How, you know, and, and what kind of denominations and what kind of people are out there propagating this false uh, doctrine of sovereignty? And we're going to get into that next time.